And I'm Ernie Manus. And I'm Catherine Liu. And this is Unwrap, unwrap Your, your candies, candies Now. And you know, it's a good thing to unwrap your candies because they're like a lozenge. And you can always just let them soothe your throat. So if you've got a cough out there, it's, it's a great thing to unwrap some candy. Ah, I love that sound like now. That? Yeah, it's kind of become our thing, isn't it? <laughs> and I want to thank you. Ernie, for getting us a beautiful batch of new candies. I know our well, listeners can't see them, but there's so much variety in there. Yeah. <laughs> what you hear is disappointment because I, I did it on Amazon, and the picture of the candy bag looks so big and tall. And then I opened the box when it got here, and it was not a huge bag of candy. Oh. It was a good mix, and people seem to keep coming by and eating our candy, but... Yeah, I know my oh, office has become very popular thanks to you. That's where we keep the candy bowl. <laughs> yes, it stays when in we're not office. eating it and recording in the <laughs> yeah. studio. But you know, that's a wonderful true story that we just shared. And another wonderful true story that just happens to be on stage right now here in Houston is Come From Away. It's the Broadway musical, hit musical, got a lot of Tony nominations, one for Best Director, based on, it's it, people say the 9-11 musical, but it's not. It's the day after. It's kind of the 912 musical. And the premise being quite simply, 911 there were a lot of planes in the air when the horrible disasters happened and those planes had to go somewhere. So all over the world planes were told to land at nearby airports and what they thought were safe fields and I think it was 38 jumbo jets landed in this small airport in Canada. And that town that only had a population of like 9,000 people suddenly had a population increase 7,000 more people. And they had to house these people and take care of them for five days until the planes could leave again. And the story is of the generosity and openness of a group of people to another group of strangers that were just people to them. It's a beautiful musical. I didn't think I would like it because I never really liked those overhyped shows. Let me tell you, it lives up to every bit of hype. Mm. And then the really odd quirk about the whole thing is two of the characters in the musical, they're, one's an Englishman, one's a, a woman from America, and they meet in this situation and they end up falling in love and getting married. And in real life, all of that happened and they live right here in Houston. Oh, wow. And so they're my guests today. The real live Nick and Diane are going to be here on the show with us. That's beautiful. Well, I also have a show to talk about that is based on a real-life story, and that is the story of the legendary opera singer Marian Anderson. Really? Yeah, the famous opera singer from the sort of the first half of the 20th century mm -hmm. who broke racial barriers while also um, becoming a world-renowned opera singer. One of the best things she's known for is becoming the, the first black person to sing at the Met. Wow. And that happened in 1955. So Houston Grand Opera has created this world premiere opera called Marion's Song, inspired by her life. And the libretto is written by Houston poet Deborah Deep Mouton. Really? So she is also, and, and here's another twist, she is not only Houston Poet Laureate Emeritus, but she is also a world champion slam poet. And so she has incorporated spoken word into the libretto. So fusing opera with spoken words. We're going to talk about the groundbreaking thing she's doing with this opera and, of course, the legacy of Marianne Anderson. Well, I'm way too excited right now. So I'm Me going too. in for some candy. I want this show to start. Uh, I tried to get you some root beer barrels. And in waiting to tape this show, I think people ate all your root beer barrels. So you didn't get one. <laughs> 
And I want to thank Ars Lyrica Houston for suggesting us to get root beer barrels. They were so, so good. Ars Lyrica, we're still working on it. Yes. We're going to get more. But, um, ooh, let's see. The strawberry. You like those. Candy wrapped. Like a strawberry. Like a strawberry. Here we go. Catherine and Ernie are about to begin the show. Find your seats, silence all chiming devices, locate the nearest exit, and should you wish to partake of any hard candy during the program, please unwrap your candies now. Oftentimes we speak to folks that are starring in a show or have written a show or directed. Or Today we have a unique opportunity to talk to a couple of folks who actually lived the story you're seeing on stage. Their story is told in the huge hit musical, Come From Away, that's currently here in Houston. It is Nick and Diane Marson. Welcome to the Thank show. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning, everybody. So last night I saw the show and you folks were in the audience too. Yes, we were. Yeah, we were. What goes through your mind when you see your story being told on stage? Oh. Well, Diane always says when people say, you've seen it so many times, you've got to be crazy. And she says it's like we're renewing our vows every time we, we it, see it. It reminds it, us of that special time. Yeah. Plus, it reminds us of the special friends that we made in Canada in, in mm-hmm. Gander. In, actually, we were in a smaller town of Gambo. And it remind, we call them our big family yeah. up north now. Yeah. The angels that looked after us during right. those five days. So, so do me a favor for folks that don't know the story of Come From Away. Which one of you wants to give the elevator speech? Well, it's the story, actually, of what happened after 9-11. It's a 9-12 story because you had almost 7,000 passengers, airline passengers, who were grounded in a town of less than 10,000 and how they took care of us and provided everything we needed for five days. And the most... We like thing- to, We like to say that... Uh, 9-11 is a story about uh, people with hatred in their hearts, and 9-12 is a story about people with love in their hearts. Yeah. And, and, and Come From Away is that love yes. story. This story tells, there's probably 10,000 or more stories in that town of what happened during that time because we almost doubled their population. That's the part that fascinates yeah. me, and you think about that. Because yes. you, you think of 7,000 people, and you think, well, that's a, that's a sizable number of people. But when it's a town as small as where you yes. went, or a grouping of towns. And, and they and, didn't and have the infrastructure to take right. care of us like, right. like Toronto might have done. Right. right. And do you know why you were diverted to a smaller airport yes. instead yes, of we Toronto? Do. Yes, we yeah. Actually... It was because they wanted the planes to be diverted over more remote areas because they were we were a security risk, frankly. And if anything was to happen, Newfoundland had less to lose than Toronto. Yes, less people or, to lose than uh, if it were over another a big mm. town. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. The whole show gives me chills, and it's wrong to say it that way because it's such an enjoyable night in the theater. It's an it emotional really, roller coaster. Oh yes, it, it's yes. fabulous. People around me were crying and yeah. up and cheering. You know, yeah. it in the, has, it's yes. almost in the same sentence. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Amazing story. Um, what fascinates me is the story of how you two met also, because it's told on the show, mm, finessed a little for yes, the stage. Yes, it is. Actually, I was taken, uh, we've spent more than a day on the plane. 
we were on the same plane, but we did not meet on the plane. So the planes brought down into right. different 38, airports, 38, but 38 planes came yes. down where right. at the airport right. you were at. And, they and then had, you had to stay on the plane. Yes, we had to stay on the plane for several reasons. One, they needed to know what to do with us. Mm-hmm. And the other, we could have been a security risk. There were policemen, uh, Royal Mounted policemen everywhere and until we were taken off uh, we weren't sure we we did not see any of the newscast we did not know exactly what had happened I was worried about my son who lived here in Houston who might have been flying that day so it was a very stressful 24 yeah. hours of when, sitting on the plane four hours into the flight the captain came over the intercom and said there was problems with American airspace and we were diverted into Newfoundland it wasn't until we landed that he actually told us the truth. But that really didn't sink in until a day later when we saw the looping news. And so the, you were on the plane for, what was it, 28 hours? Was uh, something like that. Yeah, over it's, an entire day. Yeah. And then the, this community takes you folks in because you can't right. stay on the yeah. planes, but right. no planes can fly for a while, right. if everyone remembers back right. on 9-11 what happened. And so you get absorbed into this community. We, we did. Actually, they thought of everything if you needed medication they were ready to give you four or five days worth of emergency because all you could take off the plane was your carry-on bag and Mm -hmm. i had a bag of makeup with no medication in it so we got (laughs) makeup came in pretty handy by the way yeah (laughs) oh (laughs) we got separated from the rest of our plane and nick was sent to a a shelter 30 miles away from the, the big city of gander and I was sent to a, a shelter in Gander, but it was too full. So they gave me a nice hot meal, and a volunteer took a man and I 30 miles away to the same shelter Nick was. And so for people that don't know the story, you two did not know each other. You no. just happened by no. happenstance to be on the no. same plane. Right. I'm British, and Diana's an American. So. A Texan. I'm, oh, yeah, I'm, she's a, a, I'm Texan. a native yeah, Houstonian, right. please. Oh, yes, let's just not say an American. She's a <laughs> right. Texan. Yeah. Right. And... You two meet, and there is a spark. Right. Yeah, yeah. and it, I think the fact that we were both on, it turned out we were both on the same plane, so it's like strength in numbers. So right. you, there's the companionship. And then as the days progressed, they first of all, they gave us somewhere to sleep. They fed us, and then they started entertaining us. And during the entertainment, we got to know each other more better. Uh, more better. More better. <laughs> <laughs> something like that yeah better and better better and better better yeah right and i think as as time progressed uh, i wasn't expecting to see diane again and that's why i took a photograph on dover fault which is portrayed in the show very very accurately right and that's when i knew he was interested in me because he wanted a picture of me so (laughs) i was interested in him as well and the night before at the screeching ceremony she'd uh, jokingly offered to marry me and that's that's <laughs> well, when I bought her two it, more beers. It was everyone was trying to lighten the mood and they were having fun and there was music and there was a screeching ceremony which is makes you an honorary Newfoundlander uh-huh. and I didn't know anybody there and I never expected to go back there so I was just being silly. <laughs> <laughs> and Going, who would have thought? Right, who would have thought? <laughs> Fast forward a year later you two get married and where do you honeymoon? Newfoundland. Newfoundland. You go back to this community. We go yeah. back so. to the same little community. We spent the time with our friends that we'd made the year before. That is a great story. We've been back nine times now. I want to take a step back into the show for a minute and say, 
I watch the show and I am saddened so much about where we as a nation have gone. Yes. That you look back and you see this community that you folks all landed in. And it hearkened back to a time or a belief of a time we had where everyone just appreciated each other, was yes. honest, didn't, yeah. weren't fearful of one another, but were there to help one another. It, it reminds me of the neighborhood I grew up in yeah. in the Heights. Yeah, it reminds and, me of the 1950s. Right, in, in the England. 1950s. And everybody knew everybody. If a neighbor needed something, uh, we, there were people there to help. Uh, you forget a, these communities still exist. I know. Yes. I know. It's Houston has grown tremendously, mm-hmm. but it hasn't grown its heart tremendously. Yeah. Well, I think, and I wouldn't just say it's Houston. I think it's it's been a whole. It's it's, it's an evolution that we have yes. gone through in this country, and I think this show come from away reminds us of where we really should be yeah. and the world, tells us, go back to Where that. the world needs The world to needs yeah. to hear this story right, right. now. It's the right yeah. time. And so yeah. inspiring. Yeah. So it exciting. Is. And, and I want to be angry. I want to say, come on, folks, get get it together again. But then I want to also say there's so much joy and so much to celebrate in this yes. and so much to believe that each person that sees this show hopefully takes that piece with them back into their life right. each day. It's, it's being portrayed by five different casts over the globe. Mm-hmm. And that gives me a heartwarming thought that that many people are getting exposed to this story and that perhaps even if you take away one or two days of being kinder to someone, mm-hmm. maybe that becomes contagious. Yeah, it's interesting too. It was running through my mind while we were in the theater I was watching it. This this was being taped on Super Tuesday was happening. Yes. And all over the country, people were voting. And the rhetoric that's out there and the way people uh, perceive or want this country to go in a new direction right. or those that want to hold it in the direction it's currently going are at odds with each other. And we're sitting in a theater looking at a group of people whose only thing is to open their heart to other people. Right. And right. really an important and moment. And th- those people didn't care who you were or where you came from or how much was in your wallet mm-hmm. or who you supported. They just wanted to be kind and help us out. I mean, we were there with... Give us love and kindness. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, a little of the nuts and bolts, too. How did they collect your story? How okay, did this so get to go? The 10th anniversary of 9-11, which is in 2011, uh, we were back in Gander, and uh, we were approached by this young couple, uh, David uh, Hine and Irene Sankoff, and they said... We've got a grant from the Canadian government to write a play about 9-11. And we kind of looked at each other and thought, well, good luck with that one. <laughs> well, they said a musical. <laughs> and I think of a musical of something like S- the Sound of Music or uh, yeah. Chicago or something. Yeah. And I thought, how are they going to do that? But we interviewed with them. We Skyped with them later on after we'd gotten home. Oh, for four we, hours or more. Yeah. We followed the workshopping at Sheridan College in Toronto with them. In October of 2013, their play was selected as the only Canadian play out of 12 of new musicals to be presented to directors, producers, Um, production companies and so we went up and we were handing out little cds demos and and playbills playbills about it and they got backing right there wow now i hear rumors of a movie yeah we've heard the same rumor 
Who well, do you want to play you in the movies? If you guys could do casting, I think who's... Hugh, Hugh Grant for me. And, Hugh Grant and, for you? And, 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 and Julie Roberts, Roberts for, for Diane. Yeah. I see it. I yeah, think yeah, that's, yeah. that's it. I want to thank you both so much for coming in and chatting with us. Come From Away is currently here in Houston through March 8th. And uh, thank you so much for doing oh, this. Thank, thank you, you for, for having, having us. us. Thank you very It's much. a wonderful story to share. And it's our, our honor to share it. You can find out more about this show by going to their website, comefromaway.com. As we mentioned, the show is here through Sunday, the 8th, at the Hobby Center. To find out more, you can look at houston.broadway.com. So what have you got? So I was thinking about how sometimes you joke about um, being a fanboy of, of some of your guests. We get to talk. We're so lucky to get to talk with so many amazing performers and artists. Well, this week I got to be kind of a fangirl and definitely a fangirl of my guest, Deborah Deep Mouton. Um, she is a former Houston Poet Laureate. Her poetry has been featured locally, nationally, internationally, including the BBC. Uh, she's a world champ slam poet, formerly ranked number two best female poet in the world. Wow. And now she can add librettist to her resume. Look at that. Deborah Deep Mouton has written uh, the libretto for Houston Grand Opera's world premiere opera, Marion's Song, which is based on the life of legendary opera singer Marion Anderson. And um, just really loved getting to talk to her. You know, I've, I've inter- here's my fangirl. Let me get started. <laughs> it's getting going now. Um, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Deborah a number of times in recent years, yeah. you know, about her poetry, and she's performed um, for me as well. She's not performed for, me, for not you, for me personally, <laughs> for our listeners through me. It's that who's hanging out in the corner of your <laughs> office every so often just does a poem for you. But um, this was a really special interview, I thought, for me to get to do because I got to hear about this new chapter in her artistry, where yeah. she's written her first full-length libretto, you know, how she went about creating this work and how it's affected her personally as an artist and as a woman and even as a mother. We get into a little bit of that as well. So um, hopefully I haven't given too much of it away. Let's hear from Deborah Deep Mouton. Union Baptist so close, the hair on my arms, hallelujah, purpose, a globe swelling in my chest, our future a branch away, I just need to... Deborah Deep Mouton, thank you so much for stopping by the studio today. No, thank you for having me. I always love coming to talk to you. And congratulations on this new project, being part of this world premiere of Marion Song through Houston Grand Opera. Yes, thank you. Just to start off, and I'm just curious, how much did you know about Marion Anderson um, going into this project? Yeah, I think I knew some. Her name was definitely something that was familiar to me. I think I kind of knew what the broad strokes are that everyone knows, the idea that she was a civil rights pioneer and, you know, the first black singer at the Met. Those kind of large, iconic things definitely resonated with me. I don't know that I knew, came to know her the way that I did when I was invested in this project. You know, she almost became like a friend that I was, you know, learning about and deepening with and in communication with about even just things like her needs in creating this piece and what she would want to say and what she would want highlighted. And so I think I definitely gained a greater insight into who she was, her impact, her struggle, her victory, just kind of in this whole process of developing this piece. And I understand that you read 
Marian Anderson's autobiography. Yes, actually, fifty thousand, you know, fifty thousand feet in the air on a flight to Germany. You know, I was reading Marian Anderson's autobiography. So, what moment or part of her life did you choose to focus on for this sixty-minute opera? Of course, you can't cover all the layers, (laughs) but you chose a particular moment and why. Yes, I think our climax lands with Marian singing at the Lincoln Memorial. You know, that is probably the biggest singular moment of her career that people know, you know, that that's kind of lives on beyond the real in-depth study of her. Can you describe that moment a little bit? Absolutely. So Marian Anderson kind of comes back from overseas. She's really kind of gained all kind of world renown. But when she lands back, she's, you know, in the middle of the civil rights movement in America. And that's just not a great place for black people. And so she finds herself commissioned to do this concert at Howard University, Um, And Howard University is like, you know, we don't have space for you. We need to find a bigger place. And so they lean towards Constitution Hall, which the Daughters of the Revolution at that time will and still manage. Um, Unfortunately, the Daughters of the Revolution have a law that black entertainers are not allowed to perform there in that space. But, you know, the students of Howard University kind of rally the NAACP and Walter White at the time, who's kind of the most impactful person. Um, that's working behind the scenes to get these laws passed that are able to, you know, infiltrate and change things for black people. And he reached out to Eleanor Roosevelt and just kind of explains what's going on. And she'd always been a friend of the NAACP. And so she offers a step to the Lincoln Memorial for which, you know, now looking back, we're like, this is the place where Dr. King spoke. You know, this is the place where so many historic things happen. And to see Marian Anderson there, even before that, singing on those steps and, um, Making just this moment, I think, is just, you know, historic and beautiful and something we all should be talking about. And didn't like, didn't like something like 75,000 people? 75,000 people, yeah. Yeah. Fill the mall. I mean, and if you watch the videos of it, it's just kind of a sea of people. You know, you can't even see people's faces. It's so beautiful just to see how many people came out and stood in the cold with her wrapped in a fur, right? And listened to her sing probably about a 20 minute concert of spirituals and of you know classic operas arias and it just I I just think that moment was such a beautiful one and so we we built the opera mostly around that so is that a turning point in a defining moment in her life and career then I think it is I think the way she talks about it in her autobiography she definitely spends a lot of time on it but she's always talking about how easy it was and it's funny because she talks about the ease of her career simultaneous with the racism and the oppression of her career and um but she just says she really feels like other people were the ones that did the work of opening doors for her and then she just showed up and sang and I think there is something like beautifully um rebellious about being able to just be and to stand in spaces that were not designed for you and to hold space and I think we often think of protesting and of of activism as always having to be aggressive and in your face and over the top and you know putting our bodies on the line and and while those things are true I think that there are other ways to be an activist and some of them are to be quiet and to be present you know and just to hold space and I think that that's the lesson that overall I wanted people to get from this. Now you're a a wonderful poet and storyteller you've I've had I've been lucky to have you read and perform poems for me (laughs) here at Houston Public Media Um, how did you want to tell this story because you chose a specific framework and fused your expertise in poetry and spoken word into into opera yeah I think when I first approached it 
I kind of had a few different ideas of how I wanted to arc the storylines. And then I was researching and I found that the church that Marian Anderson actually first started singing in was going to be demolished. It was up for demolition. And people were kind of rallying around trying to keep the church from being demolished. And I was kind of struck with this thing of, you know, maybe this is the story. Maybe as much as the story is recounting and understanding who Marian Anderson was, it's also us owning what is our responsibility to hold spaces that were so historic and were so, you know, monumental to especially specific cultures. How do we hold those spaces in a time where gentrification is on the rise? And so I created a character, Nevaeh, who is a poet she speaks in poetry right uh she does not sing <laughs> even though she keeps getting asked if she sings but she's able to kind of be this time traveler who holds both modern day space of being a student who just wants to run back to philadelphia and kind of just stop everything that's happening while simultaneously recounting the impact of marion anderson in some of the most historic times and spaces of her life and so she gets to fall in and out of time right you know she gets to be first on a train to Philadelphia and then the train becomes Marian Anderson's church and she's overwhelmed in Sunday morning service. Right. And then she can come back to the train and recount, you know, Marian Anderson taking on some of the largest stages. And I think just to be able to play with time in that way closes the gaps of us thinking, you know, this, this was 1939, 1930s that a lot of this was happening. And so for us to feel that it's equally as important in 2020, I think is a really a unique thing to be able to own that responsibility and also own the story, right? I think the more we say people's names, the more that we recount the things that they did, the more they become part of us and the more that we hold those as points of inspiration. And so that's kind of what I was going for when I put together this structure. So how is writing a libretto different from writing poetry? I sang a lot to myself. (laughs) I think that's part of it, you know. Um, I I told Damien Sneed, the composer, that a lot of it I would just hum in random melodies just to to feel how it felt in my mouth and see if there was, you know, wild alliteration that's really hard to sing or those things. You know, I was really cognizant of the fact that, you know, hard consonant vowels and those kind of things all sound differently and figuring out how could I string together the text. Um, I often tell people I really looked towards Hamilton and not in the ways that people think, I know everyone's like, yeah, because it's like rap and it's not at all. Where I really focused was the ballads in Hamilton, right? Of like in the sections where they were talking and singing, how were you able to play with the rhythm of rap and the song of opera and how were they able to meld together? And I think that I spent a lot of time listening to that and considering that more than anything. I mean, definitely there were some other places that I thought of, but downloading a lot of librettos, you know, reading through a lot of them and seeing where does repetition take place and where does a motif can I pull in? And so it was a lot of fun to just kind of figure out. Now, I hope you don't mind my getting a bit more personal with this next question. Not at all. So you're an artist. Yep. And you're also a mom. I am. Of two beautiful young children. Yes. Did you think about them when you were creating this opera? Absolutely, in every way. My kids will be on the front row of Thursday's premiere, right? I think for me, especially my daughter, my daughter loves Ruby Bridges. She loves, she has a book of black women activists and she reads it at night like it's water, right? She is completely just captured by the strength of black women and so there's no way that I could have written this without thinking of my daughter especially but definitely my son as well. So what do you want them to know about 
this incredible opera singer who was so groundbreaking. And of course, by extension, younger generations to know about Marion and her legacy. Yeah. I want them to know her name first off. I think that's important. And then I think the next things that I want is them to realize that they have power and responsibility over our history. You know, especially as a black woman for so long, we have been striving towards figuring out our own history. You know, I I can't tell you how often I spend on Ancestry.com trying to figure out where I came from, right? And I think we lose a lot of time reaching so far back that we don't appreciate the things that we can find and know about. And I want this to be part of the legacy that my daughter thinks about when she thinks about what it means to be a black woman in America, that you are resilient and that you're determined that you can have an art and a craft or something that God innately gave to you. And that can be enough to build a way for you, right? Um, That people will come up as opposition and people will not believe in you. And that if you have something stirring in you, that's so big that it shuts those people up. You do that thing whether that's sing or write a poem or paint a picture or whatever artistically that that is growing in you. I want my children to know that and I want audiences to know that. You know, the last line of the of the entire show is what are you waiting for? And I think for us thinking through that, right, is that there's so much that can be changed by us if we choose to fully give into it that we have these hesitations around and Maybe it's just time to stop waiting, right? And to just start doing something, even if it's something small, because those small steps eventually grow into much bigger points of change. So my last question will bring us back to you. Yeah. And I'll kind of set it up by saying, you know, Marian Anderson was, was, of course, a groundbreaking artist. You know, she broke racial barriers while also achieving the highest in her art form, and you are also a groundbreaking artist. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you know, you are a woman of color, not only creating art in an industry um, of classical music and opera that, that still has work to do in, in representation and diverse storytelling, but you are also a woman shaping the future of opera with a work like this. I mean, literally shaping the genre Deborah, (laughs) Um, by fusing spoken word with classical music. Do you do you think about that? And how do you feel about that role? And how has working on Marion's song sort of affected you as an artist? Yes. Ooh, that's such a big question. Yeah, thanks for letting me get get that all out. (laughs) No, you know, I I try not to spend too much time thinking about it because I feel like if I think about it too much, I'll stop doing the work of it. You know, I have so much writing to do in this world, right? Like I have so many ideas and so many things that I want to create and stories I want to tell. And I think that if I get too caught up in thinking about all the possible things that they could be, I, I, I'll i drown in my own anxiety. <laughs> but I, what I do think about is the places that I'm opening doors, you know, to be a spoken word artist working with a classical opera. And I mean, a large one at that, you know, this is the Houston Grand Opera, right? And to be able to also bring in another spoken word artist to play the part and to have them also figure out how to engage with that space. I'm not only opening a door, but I'm letting someone else in. And I think that that's more important than anything, right? Is figuring out not only how do I get myself into the room, right? But how do I make enough room that people who are doing work just like me that are as impactful and as passionate and as are driven can also find a space to say that this is also a welcome space for you or this is a place maybe you didn't think about but that we can hold and and be in too, right? And so it's been really great. You know, Tina B is the spoken word artist that's going to be playing Nevaeh. 
And we had a lot of, you know, one-on-one sessions where I was like, hey, you need to start thinking this way or you need to consider this or um, have you tried playing with this? And learning how to work with music that's so kind of on the mark all the time is hard when you're an improvisational artist, which I think spoken word a lot of the times is. And so I think that's probably where my pride comes in more. You know, I was actually talking to one of the singers in the chorus and he told me, he's like, you know, thank you for creating this work because we didn't have this, you know, on our docket earlier this year. And I told him, I think the thing that makes me the most proud is being able to look around the room and see that I created something that employs 20 or 30 people, right? That people are making their livelihood and eating because something that I wrote in my bedroom. And there's just no greater joy than that to say that I can help give someone room and space to breathe and space to be 100% themselves without apology. I mean, that that is what at the heart of it, I think, moves me and keeps me making work that, you know, I shouldn't have the time to or the energy to make. That's what fuels me. And in a way, that is part of Marion's oh, yeah. legacy, opening doors. Yes. Marion's song is the 68th world premiere by Houston Grand Opera. It's directed by Dennis Whitehead Darling with music by Damien Sneed and libretto by my guest, Deborah Deep Mouton, who is, by the way, Houston Poet Laureate Emeritus. Yes. I want to get that in. Um, Deborah, thank you so much for coming in to chat. Anytime. I always love coming in to talk. Thanks. Houston Grand Opera's Marion Song will have its world premiere on March 5th and 6th at the Wortham Center. Uh, So depending on when you are listening to this podcast, you may have a chance to see it on Friday, March 6th at 7 p.m. But regardless, this is a new work that is now entering the repertoire of the opera world. So hopefully we'll see it performed again in the future and maybe you know, travel to other opera companies and be produced all over the country. You know, who knows? Yeah. I'm so, so proud of Deborah. I do love her. And it's so great to see this when you say entering into the world. of You know, it's going to be here now forever. That's really amazing. Yeah. You can get more details in the meantime uh, from Houston Grand Opera's website, which is hgo.org. And learn more about Houston poet Deborah Deep Mouton at livelifedeep.com. And that brings us to the end of this show. You know, if you have not had enough of us yet and want to re-engage with us, you can always email us, uicn at houstonpublicmedia.org. You can join us in the realm of social media at hashtag UICN, or you can just keep downloading, listening to us over and over again, wherever podcasts are available. You know, I was joking earlier in the in the intro about how Ars Lyrica Houston suggested we get root beer barrels. So, you know, if you not only can you send us ideas for you segments you want to hear, let us know what kind of candy <laughs> you want us to uh, unwrap next. So, <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Ernie. Bye bye.